Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today we are here to talk about primaries. I know, you thought we already talked about it. Sarah just fell asleep, that's awesome. But as you might be aware, it's been kind of a firestorm of primary season. So who thought Iowa would be like the end all and be all of caucuses and primaries? So we thought we'd talk about it more. And if you're listening to this on the date we release it, as you all should be, just kidding, we are less than one week away from Super Tuesday, which is the date where Alabama, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Democrats abroad, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia will all hold their presidential primaries. So that date this year is March 3rd, 2020. And by this point, we're already in a month into primary season as well, starting with the Iowa caucuses on February 3rd. And more on those later, as clearly the cluster F that was Iowa and, you know, has continued past Iowa could result in its own podcast episode. But we won't do that to you. Sarah, visible sigh of relief there. I can't strong arm this one through. Okay, but let's back up a little bit and talk about why the primaries are so important and reinforce again why your vote matters. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know that we gave a primer on the elections back in episode 35. So if you're unsure about what a primary is, what a caucus is, have general questions about our electoral process, drop everything and go back and listen to that one, episode 35. What we're starting here today is a look into why the primaries are so crucial, especially this year. We're going to look at what the deal is with Super Tuesday, what on earth happened in Iowa, why it matters, and a look towards what the primaries really mean for our presidential election. So are you ready? Yes. Here we go. Let's do it. Yay. Okay. To start off, the New York Times did a great interactive article on the primaries, and I think we will be putting this out, um, a link to that. But because we love speed rounds so much and because they pack a lot of information into several questions and short, pithy, somewhat snarky answers, also what we love. So they seriously outdid themselves with this piece and the humor mixed with politics. You should read it if you want to read all 35 questions and answers. But today we're just hitting the highlights. So Sarah, you up for a quick primary quiz? Of course. Thought so. All right, let's do it. The highlights from that article. So Sarah, if you want to start with the questions, we can flip part of the way through. Let's do it. Okay, so here we go. When does primary season begin and how long is it? Voting began February 3rd with the Iowa caucuses. The last states vote in early June. So four months, which is like a college semester, except in the end, all but one person will flunk out. All right. Who will I be voting for in the primaries? All right. So the primary is the main event. Candidates for the Democratic and Republican 2020 presidential nominations. But voters will find all manner of down-ballot elections to consider on primary day. And here, down-ballot means everything that's not the presidential nomination. So that includes House and Senate races and seats on the state legislature. I really have to emphasize that this is so important because it's the people who are in those seats, as we just saw, who make decisions on things like impeachment, which admittedly is rare, but also so many other policies. They offer checks and balances on issues that are important. These like pollings, the votes that we're going to do on the day of the primaries, whenever it is your state is voting is so important. So you really want to pay attention to local politics. And you want to think about how you want our governing bodies to look when the time comes to vote this summer. 
Yes, because you might be voting for the presidents of tomorrow in those contests. And P.S., I've been watching Designated Survivor. And <laughs> I know you love hearing about it, but you literally, I mean, you never know, right? Designated Survivor, I'm just saying. When you Google Designated Survivor, it tells you who the Designated Survivor was during the State of the Union. So, I mean, if you have that cast... And if you've ever watched 24, it's no freaking surprise who the survivor is, right? I know. But well, and then I was just like so shocked because there is a president with empathy. I was like, oh, it's been a minute. But anyway, okay. You went there. (laughs) Okay. What's the difference between primaries and caucuses? Okay. So primaries are reasonably straightforward. Voters vote and their vote goes to candidates who hope to receive more votes than the other candidates. Caucuses, like Iowa, are like this in spirit, but with a dash of municipal sausage making and DMV style chaos. I mentioned where you are, you like the New York Times article was hilarious. That was literally from them. They are so awesome. You are going to want to read this. But anyway. Yes. So generally supporters for various candidates sit or stand together in groups. A headcount is conducted. And if a candidate doesn't reach a certain threshold of support, say 15% of attendees at a caucus site, the group is deemed non-viable and its members realign with other clusters before a final count is made. Democracy. I'm literally just shaking my head like, why do we do those instead of just making everybody switch to primary systems? But that's interesting. Okay. That's a whole other conversation, I think. Can states actually cancel their primaries? Yes, they can. And they actually did this year, certain states. In Alaska, Nevada, Kansas, Virginia, Arizona, South Carolina, and Hawaii, they canceled the Republican primaries only. So while President Trump would be an overwhelming favorite to win a Republican primary in any state, those states that we just listed have decided to scrap that exercise altogether. Trump critics called this move anti-democratic, but there is bipartisan precedent for such cancellations when a party's incumbent and seeking re-election. Which brings us to a really interesting question, because I did not actually know this. Is there a Republican presidential primary officially and like opponents actually running against President Trump? Yeah, me neither. And yes, in most states, Mr. Trump's opponents include Joe Walsh, a former Illinois congressman, and William F. Weld, a former governor of Massachusetts. At present, they are approximately as likely to win as any person listening to this podcast. (laughs) Awesome. And again, we're recording this and issuing it in March, like things may have changed by the time you're listening to this. But as of now, that's what we've got. So can you vote in both the Democratic primary and the Republican primary? It's just one vote per person. And in some states with so-called closed primaries, you'll need to be registered with a given party to participate. And again, we do cover that in episode 35, because there are certain states like where I'm at in Colorado, you don't have to be registered, but you can only vote for one party. So check state by state. So now going back to current news, can Trump get reelected president again, even after being impeached by the House? That is his plan. Mr. Trump is the first impeached president ever to seek reelection. Hmm. All right. He probably wants to win it, too. Mm-hmm. All right. Why do we keep hearing that Iowa is so important? Okay, because Iowa goes first, as we saw, it was the first primary or caucus this year on the 3rd of February and has since the 1970s. So why does Iowa go first? There's no great reason, though the tumultuous 1968 Democratic Convention, where there was just a whole bunch of violence over the Vietnam War and racial tension sort of set the stage to an extent. So after that happened in 1968, the Democratic parties nationally and in Iowa decided they wanted to change their process to make it more inclusive. Because Sarah, I think you were asking why. 
Yeah, I'm like, what happened in 1968? Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. So after that change, inertia is a powerful thing. It's sort of like a teacher giving extra credit to the student who comes first alphabetically, except instead of extra credit, it's kind words from national politicians about the good people of Sioux City. Strictly speaking, Iowa awards a relatively small share of delegates. More on that shortly. But winning the state or even exceeding expectations as a non-winner can propel a campaign through the rest of the early calendar. And again, more on Iowa in a minute. All right. Here we go. So what we're talking about is Super Tuesday. What is it? And I think we add a little bit more than what the article says here, which is great. Yes. So Super Tuesday, which is March 3rd, is perhaps the most important single date on the primary calendar because of how many major states will be holding their elections, including two very large states, California and Texas. So it includes all the states that we listed at the start of this episode. And about 40% of all pledged Democratic delegates will be awarded in these states. So also, in case you were wondering, the American Samoa Democratic Caucus, as well as what we mentioned, Democrats Abroad, which means Democrats living abroad primary, will also be held on Super Tuesday. But with Super Tuesday, the delegate fight gets serious. The four early states, including South Carolina and Nevada, are important for narrowing the field and establishing narratives, but only 4% of the party's total delegates will be awarded in February. So although there's four primaries and caucuses in February, that's only 4% of delegates. On March 3rd, when 14 states are scheduled to hold primaries, a staggering one-third of the total delegates will be awarded in a single day. So by the time March is over, two-thirds of all delegates will be spoken for. So Sarah, do you want to tell us when Super Tuesday became a thing? Yes. Voting on that day of the week is an old tradition in the United States, but the 1976 election is often credited for leading to the first recorded uses of that particular phrase. The earliest usage came the following primary season in 1980, and that year Senator Edward Kennedy set his sights on a day when the eight states voted in his ultimately unsuccessful bid to replace President Jimmy Carter as a Democratic nominee. And after that, the phrase was in increasingly common use. The more interesting question is why? So considering the amount of tension that goes to the states with early caucus and primary dates like Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, we were just talking about that. Why would so many states opt not to get their own days in the sun? And one reason, as explained by Barbara Norander in the appropriately titled book, Super Tuesday, is that the Democratic Party was suffering in the South. And so she traces the beginning of Super Tuesday as an institution to 1988, when the Democratic Party got fed up with a decades-long pattern. Basically, they noticed that every nominating contest seemed to result in non-Southern Democrats, who generally voted earlier, giving crucial momentum to a candidate who ultimately couldn't win in that region. So if Southern states held their primaries all together on a relatively early day, they figured that they would have more influence on the eventual nominee. So in the lead up to 1988, many of those states, or at least the ones where Democrats had enough say in the state legislatures, scheduled their primaries for the same day, March 8th. And a couple of northern states would vote on that day, too. And the rationale made sense, uh, except it didn't work, at least at first. We were actually alive during this time. But Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, who appeared on a number of primary ballots, got creamed in the general election, which was a landslide for Republican candidate George H.W. Bush. 
But that was the first time that that happened in 88. So even if it didn't work then, Super Tuesday still stuck around. And in 1992, the notion that led to its creation finally paid off. Bill Clinton, who swept the Southern Super Tuesday contests, went on to win the White House thanks in part to general election victories in several Super Tuesday states. I will say, ironically, the more moderate Southern white Democrats who concocted the Super Tuesday plan are now rare in the modern Democratic Party. And the Southern states remain big players on Super Tuesday, giving more influence not to moderate whites, but to black voters. In seven of those Southern states, for example, a third of the Democratic electorate in 2008 was African-American. And in two of them, in Georgia and Alabama, they were a majority of Democratic voters. I had no idea, actually, about that when I was researching Super Tuesday. That's interesting. How does someone win the Democratic nomination, Misasha? <laughs> a candidate hoping to win on the first ballot at the convention must secure a majority of pledged delegates, as dictated by the outcomes in state primaries and caucuses. In total, there are just under 4,000 pledged delegates up for grabs, as well as hundreds of superdelegates, though the party prefers to call them automatic delegates. The official nomination will take place at the party's convention in Milwaukee this summer. So what are delegates? Two different ones. Delegates, the people, are like political figures, like activists, local leaders chosen to represent their states at the party's convention. When we're talking about delegates, the numbers, they are the all-purpose metric of primary success. So they are allocated proportionally according to the state voting results and their you know, population. So generally, a candidate has to exceed 15% of the vote in a congressional district or statewide to win delegates. Okay, so what are superdelegates? Didn't they get rid of those? Democratic superdelegates are political insiders. They can be sitting lawmakers to former senior party officials who primary choices can be divorced entirely from the preference of the average voter. Superdelegates can vote as they choose, and their very existence in 2016 became a source of major tension in the race between Hillary Clinton and Mr. Sanders. So while Mrs. Clinton bested Mr. Sanders among pledged delegates in 2016, Mr. Sanders and his supporters saw the superdelegate system as an affront to the democratic process, basically because you're giving so much power to sitting lawmakers and former senior party officials. So in response, the Democratic National Committee has sharply reduced the influence of superdelegates, basically effectively preventing them from participating in a substantial way in the first ballot of the presidential nominating process. That said, if there's a deadlock at the convention and this season is looking very interesting, superdelegates could come into play. Are there any history makers in the presidential election? Your voice sounds a little too sickly sweet right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was putting on my best political voice for you, Sarah. <laughs> Thanks. Mrs. Warren or Ms. Klobuchar or Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii would be the first woman elected president. And things change all the time. You're going to make me say his name. Mr. Buttigieg would be the first openly gay present person to hold the office. And Mr. Sanders or Mr. Bloomberg would be the first Jewish president elected. But if you look at it, and I think you said a catchphrase a long time ago, for all the initial excitement within the party about such a deep bench of candidates of color, several, including Senators Kamala Harris of California and Cory Booker of New Jersey and Julian Castro, the former federal housing secretary, have all dropped out. And the remaining low polling non-white candidates are also out. Deval Patrick is out and the former governor of Massachusetts, right? And then Andrew Yang just dropped out, former tech executive. 
Yeah, I was literally typing that into the notes because I just saw the article about Deval Patrick dropping out right before we started recording. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the field is narrowing and it's obviously going to be way more narrow by the time people are listening. There's also this other bit of potential history. Sanders is 78, Biden 77, Bloomberg 77, Warren is 70. Any of them would each be the oldest president ever inaugurated for a first term. Huh. Which party has done better in fundraising so far? I hate that we have to talk about this, but it's true. Very true. Money rules right now, right? Trump entered 2020 with more than $100 million in cash on hand, and he outpaced every Democrat with $46 million in the fourth quarter of 2019. But contenders for the Democratic nomination have cumulatively surpassed Trump's total, suggesting pretty good enthusiasm. So, yeah, they're all doing okay in money, and they're not going to go hungry anytime soon. Does my vote in the primaries matter? Yes, hell yes. <laughs> While the piecemeal nature of the state-by-state -state calendar might make the process seem less exciting than, like, you know, the general election, which is all in one day, the primaries really do resolve the non-trivial matter of choosing major party nominees and also all the down-ballot stuff, as we've talked about. Is it okay for me to skip voting in the primaries and just vote in the general election? Of course, it's allowed. And of course, all the candidates are like, every election is the most important of our lifetime. By definition, that cannot be true. But like I just mentioned, the down-ballot primaries will be of significant consequence locally in many states. And those are the feeder systems for our future. So it's incredibly, incredibly important to vote, especially all the way down the ballot, not just for the main event here. All right. So I need to vote in the primaries. But do I need to be registered to vote in the primaries? Yeah, 49 states require voter registration. I cannot understand why North Dakota does not require it, but it seems not to. Deadlines can be found at the U.S. Vote Foundation. So if you want any of this stuff, follow us on social. Probably I'll list all this on Facebook or get on our email list because we will send all these links out for places to check out this information. Okay, so do I need a government-issued ID? Those requirements vary by state. And again, we'll have a detailed rundown that we can send to you. But over at NCLS, which is the National Conference of State Legislatures, they have all this information listed there. Okay, so what if I was removed in a voter purge? If you're worried about that, you can check it out at vote.org. I checked our status out there. I've already posted that on social media. I can do that again on Facebook if you want. But I would check now before it gets too late. Okay, so can I vote over the internet? I still can't believe it's true, but some <laughs> states allow it in certain often narrowly defined circumstances. Let's be very clear. This is my addendum to the New York Times article here, but so many scams are likely to go around in the next few months discouraging people from showing up at polling places by saying, you can vote over the internet or vote by proxy. There's going to be a lot of lies out there. The best bet is to do it the traditional way, in our opinion. I would also add as having manned election question hotlines where we get calls from direct from voters and also calls from polling places. This was a question that I was asked multiple times just in my one, you know, several hours of volunteering. So and the answer typically is no. So you should definitely not plan on voting over the Internet. You should have plans in place to vote by mail, vote at a vote center, depending on where you live or go in person. All right. My favorite question. Well, it's not my favorite, but it's one of my favorite questions. Are Russians going to interfere again? The intelligence community is certainly bracing for it. Despite the president's longstanding doubts about the intelligence consensus on Russian interference in 2016, officials have warned that a sequel of sorts is in the works. 
I really want to talk about this in more detail at a later time, because I think there's still people saying it didn't happen. It freaking happened. And after detecting evidence of Russian influence efforts in 2018, Christopher A. Ray, who was the FBI director, said last year that he viewed the attempts as a, quote, kind of dress rehearsal for the big show in 2020. Terrifying. It is. And I don't think people know enough about it. I certainly don't know enough about it. So anyway, we can talk about that or look more about that later. How can I tell this year if Trump's chances of winning re-election are increasing? Well, historically, the health of the economy is a useful indicator, and so are approval ratings. But precedent can be complicated where Mr. Trump is concerned. So on the one hand, his party suffered steep midterm losses in 2018, despite low unemployment and many positive economic trends. And on the other, Mr. Trump won in 2016, despite often dismal favorability scores. Whether he can repeat the feat might come down to this. Was Mrs. Clinton a uniquely unpopular nominee, or will any Democrat eventually look beatable once the president and his allies has a single opponent who they can attack every single day? I think the point of this is don't take anything for granted and get out and vote. Yep, definitely. All right. So Russians aside, should I trust the polls after 2016? Great. Yes and no. (laughs) We just witnessed Iowa imperfect polls, and they're all imperfect, but they're still more instructive than none at all if contextualized with care. And while Mr. Trump's 2016 success in states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan was a surprise, the popular vote margin, which had Mrs. Clinton up by a couple of points, was consistent with much of the late stage national polling. But of course, the only bulletproof prediction through political history is that people who make political predictions will keep getting things wrong sometimes. Okay, and this is the part of the questions that remind me of the Chappelle show. So they automatically are my favorite questions. The skit that's like the I know black people. Do you know black people? Oh, I know black people. Yeah. It's on YouTube. It's so great. I've watched that more times than I can probably admit to. But oh my gosh. Anyway, these last two questions remind me of that. Are we going to be okay? Were we ever really? Hmm, So meta. When is this all over? It's probably best not to think about that. And with that, we definitely refer you to the New York Times article because they were really, really funny. They were, I really liked that article. Yeah. And it was a great primer on some key points for the 2020 primary season. But it's important to remember that that article was written as of and contains data from roughly the start of February. And as we all remember, Iowa was a giant mess earlier this month. So why exactly was Iowa so bad? And what does this mean for the Democrats going forward? And why would we apply a security patch less than two weeks before the debut of an app and perhaps the most watched caucus in the country? Some questions we may not be able to answer, but for those we can, let's break it down. So as we know, Iowa did not go smoothly. I think we all realized that on February 3rd, when there were no reports of a winner that night or the night after. We knew it was really bad when the DNC starts talking about a re-caucus, which is a fancy way in a caucus state of saying they should count all the ballots again. That's kind of the same as a recount. So when we're recording this, you know, we basically survived that week right after Iowa, where everyone decided that they should all just forget Iowa. But as NPR pointed out in a great article, there are some key takeaways from Iowa that we should not forget moving forward in 2020. And perhaps the biggest one is not an awesome one. So what is that one, Sarah? Turnout was underwhelming. That is a hugely bad sign for Democrats. Campaigns were expecting high turnout in Iowa, but it did not 
happen. And that has to be worrying for Democrats. The closing campaign events were all packed, yet turnout was more on par with 2016 than the record-setting 2008 campaign. In terms of numbers, what does that mean? About 172,000 turned out this year in Iowa. It was 171,000 in 2016. But get this, in 2008, that was for the one where Obama was running, 239,000. It very well may be that undecided voters stay home and are fine with whoever wins, but Democrats were hoping to show just how enthusiastic their base is to turn out and beat President Trump. And in this first contest, it did not happen. Also, one of the things people were hoping for new voters did not turn out in droves. In fact, the percentage of first-time caucus goers went down this year, even compared to 2016. In 2008, the percentage of first-time caucus goers was 57%. In 2016, it was 44%. This year, it was just 35%. That's a pretty terrible trajectory. So honestly, I mean, it's like, what happened? Was it snowy? Like, what excuses do we have to not show up? Because it is hard. But oh, my gosh, that's terrible. That's a really, really, really bad sign. Because yeah, I have so many thoughts. (laughs) Okay, so I guess better than Iowa, New Hampshire seemed to go off fairly seamlessly. We're recording this the day after the New Hampshire primary happened. So so far, no, you know, terrible app. Well, because they're primaries, they're not caucuses. Right. Good point. And we'll talk about the next caucus coming up in just a second. What I thought was really interesting about New Hampshire is that exit polls released by the television networks indicated that nearly half, about 48% of New Hampshire voters surveyed, made their decision about who to vote for in the primary within the last few days. So it wasn't like a, you know, a month of study. It was really just a sort of quick or, you know, compacted decision-making time period. And besides New Hampshire, coming races remain sort of largely question marks amid a dearth of state polling. So really, we have no idea what's going to happen post-New Hampshire. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, so the good news, again, is that the New Hampshire vote occurred without major tech disruptions. And, you know, everyone was pretty happy with that because we have a real low bar. But looking ahead to the next Democratic nominating contest, that is the Nevada caucus. And so confusion still lingers there over that state party process because the Nevada State Democratic Party has released little information about how it will conduct its February 22nd caucus. And so by the time you're listening to this, that caucus will have already happened. So we're curious to see how that turned out. Good news, they're not using the app built by Shadow Inc., which was the vendor that was in charge of the failed app in Iowa. But caucus volunteers at this point have said that they were confused about the process and technology they were expected to use. So that's not awesome when you've got volunteers who are going to be there to help people vote 10 days before that happens being like, I'm not sure what's going to happen. So remember that Iowa and Nevada are among the few states that hold caucuses run by the state parties instead of state government run primary elections. So some people say that the confusion surrounding these caucuses show that elections should be run by bureaucrats and election professionals, not political parties. That's interesting. Yeah. And Nevada's Democratic Party released some details on Tuesday about in-person early voting, which it is holding for the first time. So they have not allowed early voting in the past, but that's going to be happening sort of starting right after we record this. And on early voting days, they're going to try out volunteers checking in voters using a PDF voter roll on party purchased iPads. Wow. Like the tech side of me is just like, 
Oh, no. So. Oh, my gosh. And how are we? Okay. And then I'm reading this right now. Voters will be instructed to enter their information into a Google form. <laughs> what? How is this our official format now? I mean, I just feel like, okay, trees be damned. Can we go back to paper polling? Look, I have stood in a polling place in Nevada. Well, I was taught that it, you were supposed to say Nevada, not Nevada, when I did the election protection for Obama in 2008. It was in a firehouse. And I can't imagine that you're going to be able to have some organized check-in on an iPad when you've got long lines of people waiting to vote and, you know, your internet goes down or the Google form reloads halfway through. I just, there's like so many possibilities of how this could go wrong. So... It'll be really interesting to see how this works. Well, and I think eventually, and by the time everyone's listening, we'll see how it goes. It may really be time to think about how do we switch from caucus to like having one standard way for states to vote? You know, what does it take to make that change? Because I don't actually understand that either. So let's watch what happens in Nevada. And hopefully we'll learn from that heading into Super Tuesday. Yeah, because we how they get from early voting to the caucus will also be really interesting because they've got to get those results over there somehow. So yeah, fingers crossed, right, Nevada? But, you know, I think what we have both said throughout this whole episode is that the biggest takeaway from what all of what we talked about today, joking aside, is vote. Even if it is a nightmare, even if it takes hours, we have the right and the privilege to make a difference through using our voices and using voices that others may not have to vote. Because if Trump is reelected, the downstream elections, or even if he's not reelected, the downstream elections, including the primaries, will be really important. You know, designated survivor. Really reinforce that for me. <laughs> I know I'm like 16 episodes in. I'm really like committed now. You are so addicted. It's like, folks, every conversation that me, Sasha, and I have had for the next like last couple of weeks, she's like, Still on the designated survivor kick. This is like non-podcast related obsession. You know, I only really listen to social justice, or not social justice, true crime and watch true crime. So this was like a real step out for me. And I started watching it right before the State of the Union this year. So, you know, the, anyway. All right. I've only got two and a half more seasons to go, people. <laughs> oh my gosh, how much more time? Well, and going back to the vote thing for one point here, I have heard people say, well, I don't need to vote. My husband votes for our family. Or I don't need to vote. I'm in a state that doesn't matter. For all things meaningful to us, don't give your power away. This is an amazing privilege we have in this country. And for all the fear that we have about all these systems and other people in other countries, this is an incredible gift that we have. And it's so important for us to do this for ourselves, for our future, and for each other. Yes. And I think we have a system in place in this country where we have, and we've talked about this, we have the executive branch, we have the judiciary, we have the legislative branch. All of those branches provide checks and balances for each other. And the problem is now we have a lot of bleeding over between the branches. And if we don't use our powers in, you know, our democracy or how it's structured to vote and change that and make sure those checks and balances stay in place, then we have a much larger problem than simply who's in the White House. 100% agreed. So get out there and vote and check that you're registered. Tell your friends, neighbors, family members, random strangers, check that you're registered, get yourself registered, make sure on vote.org that you are not kicked off on the voting system. I mean, it is so important, perhaps this year, more than most. 
If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 